HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello. This is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today, we're going to be talking about a really fascinating topic, um, safeguarding crop diversity for the future of the world's food supply. And I am here with two really influential people. I have Marie Haga, the executive director of the Crop Trust, and Eric Oberholzer, the founder of Tender Greens. Thank you both so much for being here. Thanks nice for having here. us. So, and you actually, first of all, you both came from quite far, right? Eric, you're from Los Angeles, is that correct? Yeah, well, actually, I just moved to Brooklyn. So oh, I'm, I'm here exciting. now. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Um, and Marie, are you based in Germany? Yes, the organization is based in Germany. I live in, Nor- in Germany. I am originally Norwegian, okay. but I um, love it in Germany. I have also lived actually in New York for um, three years, and it's wonderful to be back. Oh, wow. So we all have a New York connection now. Great. <laughs> um, so we have so much to talk about. Um, I want to get into the Food Forever campaign that you're here to launch, um, and I really want to talk about the Global Seed Vault because it's really fascinating. Um, But I guess first, um, to kind of um, work our way into the conversation, so Marie, it's it's sort of obvious why you're here to talk about crop diversity coming from the Crop Trust. Um, Eric, I don't think it's as obvious why you, the founder of a Los Angeles uh, restaurant chain, um, are. So tell, why don't we start with, um, how did you get involved in this issue? Uh, Well, I had heard about the Global Seed Vault some years ago and was fascinated by it. 
And then about a year ago, uh, met Marie uh, at a small dinner in Beverly Hills. And, um, you know, she was sharing with me some of the challenges uh, that the Crop Trust was having in relating their work to everybody else, to a broader audience. Um, and as a chef, I have access to, to everybody else, uh, whether it's uh, through our, our channels or through our plates. And it was over that conversation that I said, what, what if we were to you know, get some of those seeds and through our farm network, uh, get them in the ground, and if they were successful, get them on the plates at Tender Greens, and uh, through those edible impressions, relate the, the good work of the Crop, crop Trust um, back, back to this initiative. Mm. And, uh, and Marie said, uh, why not? <laughs> and, uh, and we got started. Great. So it all started over a meal, of course, That's right? right? <laughs> so, um, so you're now you are uh, working together on this Food Forever campaign. Um, I was at the launch last night in New York, um, and I understand that um, the campaign is um, part of sort of part of this mission to meet a sustainable uh, development goal set by the UN, um, which one of the targets was to safeguard crop diversity. So. The most basic question, why? Why is crop diversity so important as a global food and agriculture issue? Well, crop diversity is really the basis for all agriculture, for, for all food. And um, without this diversity, we really lose options for the future. And I can, I can explain that. You know, we have, uh, if we speak about potatoes, for example, there are 4,500 varieties of potatoes around the world. We have lost many varieties, but we still have probably 4,500 uh, left. And when we now want uh, to develop potatoes that can stand higher temperature because the climate is changing, potatoes that can stand more unpredictable weather, that it's more rain, more storms, whatever, uh, potatoes that can fight new pests, new diseases, well, when we develop these plants, then we have to go back to this diversity and use that and breed these plants with different traits. Because all these 4,500 varieties of potatoes have unique traits. And when we lose a variety, then we also lose um, traits. So um, considering then that we have uh, lost a lot, uh, we got to be sensible enough now as a global community to safeguard what we have left. And that is really what Food Forever is, uh, is all about. Uh, it's safeguarding this amazing biodiversity that uh, we still have, and that is really uh, the basis for our food today and um, tomorrow. So when you say these crops have been lost, what does that mean? What have they been lost to? How have they been lost? Yeah, there are many, um, there are many ways we have lost diversity. Um, but you can say that agriculture itself has contributed um, to, to loss of diversity. Um, we shouldn't blame the farmers for that. We mm -hmm. should probably blame us as consumers for that, or we should blame modern agriculture um, okay. for that. Um, if we need to blame anyone at all, uh, it certainly is a fact that this has happened. And, of course, we lose diversity due to, to urbanization, to... Uh, to a modern uh, way of organizing our societies. Mm. Right now, we are also awfully concerned that we are losing a lot of what we call crop wild relatives. You know, the, these crops, they also have 
cousins from a long time ago. <laughs> um, and um, they can be extremely useful when we do breeding because if you, for example, have had a wheat that has lived up on the mountaintop for 5,000 years, it has survived up there. Uh, it maybe doesn't really look like a wheat. It maybe doesn't give any yields. But, you know, if it has lived up there on that mountaintop for 5,000 years, it's likely that it doesn't need much water. Mm. And what we need nowadays is, for example, to, to breed plants that need um, less water. Mm. When you say um, maybe we should blame consumers, what do you, what do you mean by that? Well, um, you know, as of now, um, 75% of the food we eat globally comes from 12 plants. Wow. Actually, four plants um, give us 60% of the calorie intake um, globally. And um, that is um, not sustainable. I mean, it, it certainly right. makes us extremely uh, vulnerable. Uh, and somehow then we have developed food systems where this is possible. Right. Um, and um, again, we probably shouldn't blame anyone. <laughs> we should just uh, see the reality. And reality then is that we now need to introduce more diversity in our food systems. Right. We have historically eaten like 7,000 different uh, plants. Uh, I'm not saying we're going to eat all those 7,000 again, but we should introduce more diversity in the food system as such. And then, as I said, make sure that we also safeguard the biodiversity within these crops. But then, so introducing more diversity in our food systems um, is, um, is not necessarily an easy job, and certainly not for an organization which mandate is basically to, to safeguard, to conserve this diversity. But that is why I am so excited then uh, to bring chefs and, and bring Eric into this uh, because uh, he can really um, bring diversity to his um, kitchen and his place and bring other chefs on board, explain us you know, how, how much fun we can have with this, uh, these crops that maybe hasn't been used for, for years and years and years, how delicious they can be when they are prepared in the right way. Right. Yeah, and I definitely want to get to that and talk um, more about how chefs and um, consumers can kind of engage with this idea of um, saving different crops. Um, I, and, you know, I don't mean to push the sort of like who do we blame thing, um, the, but the reason I um, am interested in that question is it kind of seems like if this is a huge issue, we sort of need to know why it happened in order to prevent it from continuing to happen, right? Um, I'm wondering if, is it, is part of it that um, the sort of very few companies control the world's seed supply. Um, is that kind of a similar issue that affects this issue we're talking about now? You know, I think um, I would approach it slightly um, differently. I think, um, well, I don't, I don't really want to get political about this, but okay. I, I think that the focus that we have had on, on cheap food... right. Um, has um, really contributed to ruining diversity in, uh, on our plates. Uh, and I, um, I am from Europe. I can speak um, better for Europe than I can for, for the U.S. But certainly it's been an extreme focus on, on food being cheap. There has been sort of very little consideration about um, 
whether these farmers who produce that food actually get an income from it. Mm -hmm. There has certainly been hardly any discussion about resilience and uh, sustainability. Right. So you have ended up with an industrialized um, agricultural production uh, that clearly has been harmful to uh, diversity. Right. Yeah, and that that um, I think the the emphasis on cheap um, it that that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I, and your point about Europe, I wanted to ask you: um, is is there a big difference um, when you compare the crop diversity in the U.S. to the rest of the world or to Europe? Well, the fact of the matter is that the most fascinating diversity is not found in either Europe or the U.S. Ah. <laughs> uh, many crops originate in other parts of the world, right. and, and it's where a crop originates uh, where you also have uh, the, the, the richest uh, diversity. Um, so actually the Middle East is in our uh, context an mm. extremely interesting area. Wheat uh, comes from there, barley comes from there. If you go to Latin America, to Central America and South America, you have had other crops um, originating there, Far East Asia, others. Um, so <laughs> the fact of the matter is uh, that Europe um, and, and the US isn't that interesting. But having said that, uh, we really should con consider um, crop diversity as a global common good. Mm. Um, it, uh, it has to belong to us as, as uh, humankind. Um, everybody needs this diversity to build on when we breed plants for the future, whether we live on uh, this continent or, or others. So that's, that's also one of the things that we are extremely concerned about, uh, that uh, countries rally around this international treaty, which uh, has um, regulations on how we how we can um, uh, can share seeds across uh, borders because if we don't share um, this diversity, if we don't share across borders, it will not allow our breeders to develop the plants that we need in the time ahead. Hmm. And I was actually going to ask you about um, breeding. That's interesting because so we're talking about sort of safeguarding um, varieties that have been around for ever, right, for a very long time. Um, but then um, that's different than breeding plants, right? That would, you know, be able to stand up to, say, you know, climate change, um, a changing climate. It, is breeding part of this conversation too? Well, it's part of the conversation. Yeah. It's not a part of the mandate of the crop trust. Okay. The mandate of the crop trust is quite simply to safeguard this uh, genetic diversity all the four and a half thousand varieties of potatoes, the three thousand varieties of coconuts, or the hundred and twenty-five thousand varieties of wheat—that is our job, and uh, we um, develop a, um, a global system to safeguard this. Uh, work with national gene banks, work with international gene banks. Have the Svalbard Global Seed Vault as the backup for this whole thing. So we are technically developing a system to safeguard this diversity. Mm. And we do pretty well on that. We're, we're moving along. Um, but one thing is then developing the system technically. Another thing is to fund this system long term. And that is also our job. So we are building an endowment fund uh, to, to make sure that we have money um, annually for safeguarding this diversity. Because when we were established, um, our, uh, those who established us said that this diversity of crops is too important to be left to uncertainty. 
it's too important to be left to, to the budgets going up and right. down. Uh, so we need to find a mechanism to uh, constantly uh, fund these crop collections around the world. So we are building an endowment fund. Um, it um, needs to be up to 850 million US dollar. Uh, we have uh, slightly less than 300 million right now, <laughs> so we have a way to go. But I think this should be doable. Uh, actually, the cost uh, of safeguarding agrobiodiversity or crop diversity forever um, is less than what it costs to build a regular soccer stadium these days. So, oh, wow. <laughs> so it should be doable. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting that you are talking about how it's it's less than you would imagine. I was thinking immediately I thought of the seed ball. I want to talk about that. And um, I was looking at it online and the construction and it, it seems like that would be a very expensive um, thing to maintain, to build and maintain. Um, can you talk a little bit about the vault, where it is, um, how it works? Yeah, so this uh, seed vault um, that we speak about now, it is in an island called Svalbard. Um, imagine that you are in Europe, uh, you move on top of the globe almost, um, then you are in the northern part of Norway. And if you sort of set your finger in the northern part of Norway, and you, you move it up to the North Pole, you would find Svalbard right in the middle. Hmm? So that's an island. Uh, it's hardly anything up there. Uh, it's ice, 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 and ice, basically. Right. Uh, three and a half uh, thousand polar bears, 12,000 funny-looking reindeers, <laughs> 2,000 people, and one seed world. Huh? So no one lives there? Uh, there are 2,000 people living Two th there, okay. but, um, but you are not permitted either to be born or to die in Svalbard. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, um, wow, if you need how do they enforce that? As well, well <laughs> <second> <laughs> <half>. <laughs> yeah, I know that can, of course, be a bit uh, tricky um, if something happens rapidly. But right. but uh, there are no social services out there. Mm. Up there, uh, so then you have to go to the mainland in Norway if you need uh, social services. But anyway, so um, so you have this um, this um, seed vault there. Um, you see an entrance uh, in the middle of the mountain, two doors. Uh, if you go through the first door, you just enter into a kind of a corridor. Uh, you go through one more door, the third door, and when you get to the fourth door, which is completely frozen with ice, um, if you open that door uh, and you come into a vault uh, where you see simply boxes, boxes, boxes and boxes of seeds, Mm -hmm. um, it's, based, it's roughly one million varieties of seeds uh, in the vault right now, uh, which probably covers 40% or something like that of what we want to have. Our dream is to have one copy of each unique variety of seeds around the globe in the vault okay. as a backup. Um, there are 1,750 crop collections around the world. Um, some are in good shape, um, many are in very poor shape. Um, Svalbard is meant then to be the backup uh, for all of them in case something goes wrong. And of course it does happen that things go wrong. Um, we've had um, complete crop collections being uh, lost in Iraq, um, in Afghanistan. Uh. It's been fire and a tsunami um, damaging a lot of material in the Philippines. And uh, one of the most important gene banks in the world was in Aleppo in Syria. 
wow. as I said, many crops originates there, and that collection was awfully important. Um, it couldn't operate anymore due to the war. Um, we had been working with them in Aleppo for six uh, years, roughly, and had almost all of their material backed up in Svalbard. Wow. So when, um, when they couldn't operate anymore in Aleppo, we decided for the first time to take seeds out of the vault. And so these are seeds were shipped partly to Morocco and partly to Lebanon, and are, are now uh, most of it grown out there. So now they can distribute seeds again from, from these green banks. Farmers can get them, scientists can get them, breeders can get them. Wow, that's amazing. Um, and I hadn't even thought about those, you know, seeds being lost in war zones. I mean, you know, we were talking earlier a little bit about climate change, and I think when people think about these crops being lost, you think of climate events, which is obviously a huge concern, but, um, you know, in these in war-torn countries, like, that's... No, so we can we can lose material um, both because of uh, mad, man-made and god-made right. disasters. So. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, and um, so the vault, um, are there people that are working there all the time? Actually, <laughs> actually not. Yeah, that's what so. Kind of <laughs> no, like. no, we have people keeping track of temperature, for example. Yeah. Uh, there are alarm systems which uh, would go off if anything were to to happen. But no, there's no one working in the vault uh, permanently. Hmm. Um, these seeds sit there. It's it's cold in there. Minus 18 degrees Celsius is uh, is the temperature. And um, it's it's just very quiet um, in this room. Right. Um, there we have seeds from North Korea, from South Korea on the same shelf, uh, seeds from Ukraine and Russia on another shelf, uh, seeds absolutely from all over the world. It's awfully peaceful, and uh, the more they can rest, the better it is. So, um, so no, there is, uh, is no one working there uh, constantly. Wow, so interesting. <laughs> I really want to... Can you, can you go visit? Is it possible? No, <laughs> not 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 really. <laughs> um, no, you know we we can't really make it a tourist attraction. Right. Also, because if um, if we take people into the vault, uh, the temperature increases. We mm. want really to have it at a very stable stable state. Um, so it it's not possible for for the general public to to come in. Um, of course, depositors uh, can come in. Right. We occasionally bring in in media and a couple of celebrities. But <laughs> no, it, it's not meant to be a tourist attraction. Right. Um, and um, what shall I say? You know, what we have up there is actually um, a large portion of one of the world's most important natural resources. Yeah. And we got to make sure that it is as safe as possible. Absolutely. So um, we're going to take a short break in a second. Um, and then when we come back, um, Eric, I want to talk to you more about how um, chefs are engaging in um, safeguarding crop diversity and how you've been working with some farmers to plant these um, kind of forgotten crops. Um, yeah. And we'll talk more about that after this short break. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. 
Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. We're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here with Marie Haga from the Crop Trust and Eric Oberholzer from Tender Greens, and we're talking about crop diversity. Um, so we talked a lot about the Crop Trust and the seed bank before the break. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, what chefs and consumers can do and are doing um, on this issue. So last night uh, in New York, there was an event for the Food Forever campaign, and some chefs were cooking with all kinds of interesting crops like teff and um, fonio, is that right? Is That's that right. right? <laughs> um, sugar kelp, crickets, um, kernza, which is a really interesting crop. Um, so um, how are those particular foods chosen? Yeah, so a lot of these ingredients are relevant in sort of these corners of the world, and they're really important, Mm. um, but they're unknown to many of us. And as Marie said, much of the diversity, much, many of the interesting ingredients are not in Europe and the U.S., yet we're the big consumers. So introducing some of these ingredients first to chefs who truthfully were challenged and stymied a little bit uh, by the ingredients that, that, that they were matched up with. And then introducing those to, to consumers uh, through our menus um, is a great way to um, maybe find the next quinoa, the next asahi. <laughs> right. um, so teff or fonio uh, has incredible uh, nutrient density. Uh, is really important to, to the places that they're, they're native. Um, and, and I think give chefs and, and, and consumers... Uh, more interesting textures and flavors to play with. Right. Can you talk a little bit about the ingredient that you had and what you made? Yeah, so we were working with the temporary bean, which is a drought-resistant bean from the southwest of the United States. Uh, We chose it because it was um, from the U.S. And then also breadfruit, which comes out of Hawaii. Uh, I lived in Hawaii for two years, so I I had some affection for this. Oh, nice. and the tepare bean is a little smaller than a berlotti bean, super creamy, um, really, really high in, in protein. And, you know, coming out of California, uh, really relevant agriculturally because we don't have any rain. All the rain seems to be dumping here in, in New York and, and nothing in, uh, in California. Mm. So it's important. Uh, it's an important crop um, as we navigate really dry um, growing conditions. Uh, but also it, it adds a, just another uh, ingredient into our, our pantry that we, you know, we're unfamiliar with. And then the, the breadfruit um, is super crispy, uh, subtly sweet, and has a real range 
um, in the same way that you might use a potato or a sweet potato, the breadfruit can be used the same way. And by using more of this, uh, it supports some of those agricultural communities on the islands. Mm. And so you're using these ingredients um, to kind of promote um, foods from all over the world. Um, but we're talking about how they don't, they're not from here. They're not necessarily from Europe. Can we grow them here? Like, is the idea that we would take these seeds and then start to cultivate them in more places, even maybe locations where they're not necessarily native? I think, well, um, very few things are native. Um, so the tomato, for example, right. comes from the Andes, um, yet we associate it with more with the Italians. Yeah. Um, so there's not a lot of ownership over uh, many of the ingredients that we, we love. Um, in some cases, I think there'd be opportunity if we are really successful with a, an ingredient um, to grow it around the world where it makes sense. Uh, in other cases, it's an opportunity to support some of those, those regions of the world that could use mm. uh, uh, more income and, and a sense of cultural pride, you know, the same way that I think Peru has benefited for, by, um, from some of their um, crops that are indigenous to, uh, to the area. Um, mm. And it challenges chefs, and it, it, it just brings amazing ingredients to our tables. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that you had some farmers in Los Angeles that were planting some varieties for you. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the initial um, project that we're calling the Spice of Life uh, that Marie and I sort of collaborated on was, um, you know, this this uh, this opportunity to access some of these um, pure seeds from the seed banks here in the United States, um, and then get them into the ground and see how they do. Right. Uh, and what that allows us to do is to to take field notes. Um, and, you know, with failure, uh, at least we give that feedback back to the curators at the seed bank. With success, we take notes. And if we find something that's really special, really delicious, then we can uh, create more seeds and scale it up. And then in that scale, we'll get them onto the tables at Tender Greens and essentially introduce a new or forgotten uh, variety. And it might be lettuce, it might be mm. a bean, or whatever. And it's like sifting through sand. I mean, a lot of these have dropped out of uh, favor because of, um, you know, yields or uh, they're susceptible to, you know, to, to molds or disease or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's a slow-moving project that can um, unlock some magic if, if we're patient. So you haven't actually gotten to the point yet where anything is on a plate at Tender Greens? That uh, not in any volume. Right. Uh, we had some, uh, some runner beans uh, that came out of Scarborough Farms uh, this summer. Cool. Um, so they, you know, we ran those as specials. But nothing has gotten to the point where it's sort of been commercialized or scaled up. Right, right. And in New York, uh, you showed me last night you're growing them in a farm shelf container. Right. Yeah. So we're we're growing. <laughs> we uh, don't have the weather, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Uh, coming from California, I've been uh, frustrated by the, <laughs> the weather here. So I needed a season uh, with controlled uh, conditions. Right. Uh, so we're working with a, a group out of uh, Brooklyn called Farm Shelf, and it's uh, hydroponics and uh, grow lights. Um, and their plant scientists are working with the USDA uh, curators. 
and uh, and we have some. You know, I think you tasted some last night. You mm-hmm. know, these these varietals from France or Italy or Russia um, that were saved from the 17 and 1800s. So that was a a first look. Um, right. Uh, and it's interesting. Some some are bitter. Some are um, not awesome, but uh, others others are. And it's just discovery right now. And it's also a journey into our own history. Yeah. Yeah. So. So the crop trust is saving seeds in this vault, right, and doing all kinds of other work. You're um, at Tender Greens. You're experimenting with these crops. You're working with farmers. As a chef, you're putting these foods on um, plates for people. As a consumer, what can a person do um, to sort of contribute to protecting crop diversity? You know, we have um, at least... Uh, three opportunities a day uh, <laughs> to really participate. So I think, uh, you know, Marie said earlier on that uh, our addiction to cheap, abundant food um, has caused some of the problems, um, particularly in, in the U.S., uh, and I think that is spreading. Um, so if, if consumers uh, engage and demand a more diverse pantry of ingredients and chefs support that and and markets support that um, then that'll send a message back down through the supply chain to farmers uh, not just locally but internationally that uh, these diverse ingredients are desired and that we assign value to that and and we're voting that value every every day with our meal choices so as we walk through the aisles of whole foods um, look for something that is unusual. Try something new. And, you know, the, the call to action with the chefs is get outside of your comfort zone and, and bring in some unusual ingredients and test yourself and introduce those to, to your diners because chefs have this intimate relationship with the communities that they feed. And I think what's really important is that we're, we're meeting people where they're at. And sometimes it's at our dinner tables. Mm. And it's funny that I don't think uh, people think about, you know, diversifying their diet. It's like you, even if you really care about what you're eating and are trying to make the best choices, maybe you look for the organic label, maybe you try to buy from a local farmer, but um, people are kind of creatures of habit, right? And so you go to the grocery store and you kind of buy the same, you have your list and you buy the same thing over and over and over. Um, so that's kind of an interesting call to action, like just buy different things. <laughs> well, I, I think I, I think it's more than that, right? Yeah. So um, I think Asahi uh, and quinoa have been so successful. Uh, one, because they are delicious when prepared properly, um, but also they're, they're, they're superfoods. Mm. And what really resonates with people is uh, this is delicious, but it's also medicine. It's also really good for you. So if you eat more of this or more of these things, you're going to feel better. And not only is your meal going to be more delicious, um, but also you're just going to be healthier. And and I think, you know, if you look at kale and and sweet potatoes and and Brussels sprouts, you know, 10 years ago, people would have pushed kale aside. Mm -hmm. Now, if there's not kale on the on the menu, people have a meltdown. 
Um, so that's all because kale's super rich in, in, in nutrients. That Brussels sprouts are, are, are uh, you know, they, they're, 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 they're so important to, to health. And uh, same thing with cabbage and all of these, all of these ingredients that are not, not new. Yeah. Uh, they're just rediscovered in a sense. So I think as long as we uh, source ingredients that are super healthy um, and, and sort of lead with that and make it craveable and delicious, um, not everybody has to, to, to know so much about the, you know, the, the bigger global issues. Um, it's there, and we'll, we'll participate in that conversation, but it may be too much for you know, the average person to, to really absorb. Right, right. Um, I just thought of kind of a, a completely different direction that I, I wanted to go in um, quickly before <laughs> we run out of time. Um, we've been talking about crop diversity this whole time, and we've really only been talking about um, produce or grains. Um, I Are you working on um, livestock at all, um, animal diversity? Marie, I'm curious if that's part of the Crop Trust's um, efforts no so the crop trust only works uh, on crops only crops that yeah. is our mandate uh, now food forever mm. spends a bit broader because uh, we have this target in the united nations sustainable development goals speaking about uh, the need to safeguard agrobiodiversity right by 2020 and agrobiodiversity is broader than only crops so that's where uh, also the livestock the animals comes into to the picture mm. um, it um, it was a, a great achievement uh, we were awfully happy and celebrated the day when we had this language in the UN sustainable development goals because it was really the first time that a a, um, a document of, of that character at that level uh, spoke about um, diversity at all. Uh, so this is the um, basis for why we took the initiative to Food Forever. Um, it goes beyond crops. It covers all um, all foods, diversity for, for food generally. Uh, and we just realized that if we are going to be able to implement this important target in the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, we got to bring... Uh, all good forces um, together. Mm. So um, in this campaign, this awareness raising campaign called Food Forever, we have then chefs, we have scientists, um, we have politicians, uh, we have business leaders. And yes, it covers uh, all agrobiodiversity, but Crop Trust focuses only on crops. Got it. Yeah, I remember seeing a, a stat on the um, the Food Forever website about livestock. That's what just made me think of it. And I mean, we're at Heritage Radio and which also, um, you know, the company Heritage Foods, um, which I've written about before, does a lot of work with saving heritage breeds of chicken and turkeys. And so there's like a whole other <laughs> world of agricultural biodiversity that we haven't even really uh, talked about. But, you know, we don't have that much time. That's for your next program. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so I guess to, to kind of wrap things up, um, I would love to just hear from you what you think success looks like in this realm. Like, so I, I know we have this goal, this sustainable development goal from the UN that 
agricultural biodiversity is safeguarded by 2020. Um, what does that mean? Like, what, what is, how do we know it's, <laughs> it's safeguarded? Um, yeah, and, and also just success in terms of the Food Forever um, program, maybe if you each want to take one. Or <laughs> yeah, if we speak about crops, you know, we have a pretty good idea about what is out there. Mm. Uh, we know a lot about what needs to be conserved and safeguarded um, for the future. <coughs> so um, we know uh, what international gene banks has what material. We know what national gene banks uh, has um, important uh, material. Uh, so, so we know a lot. Um, so uh, it's really a question of uh, having the money, I'm sad to say, uh, to get it done. Mm. It can be done. You know, Politically, it's now said that this um, biodiversity should be safeguarded by 2020. So it's a political goal. Uh, it is technically feasible. Uh, we know how to do it. Um, and again, it doesn't cost that much money. So, so this can be done. Um, but uh, we do need to make um, people, generally, understand how fundamentally important this diversity is for food. Mm. Uh, and that uh, is then why we have Food Forever as an awareness raising campaign. That's where I think that this understanding uh, will um, come across very well through the cooperation that we have, for example, with Eric and his uh, chefs. Right. Do you want to add anything? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, 30, 35 years ago, particularly in Berkeley, California, there was the start of a movement, the organic, local, slow food movement, uh, really started with Alice Waters. And, you know, that gave birth to the fascination with heirloom varietals, um, the relationship between the chef and the farmer, and that collaborative um, partnership in shaping the, f the food system that we have today. I think this is just the next natural evolution. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to continue to work very locally with our, with our farmers and our artisans, um, but now we're globally connected, and we're all looking at a future that if we continue um, along the, the, the path that we've been on, we're in trouble. And chefs have an opportunity to shape culture through food. And it won't be one of us. It, it'll be a crowdsourced effort. But if, you know, the 10 chefs that we had last night um, inspire their friends, and we have 100 chefs in three months, and then 1,000 chefs, we start to form this global movement, really managed locally, but together it becomes this global movement, this global push towards a more diverse um, ingredient future. Um, and I think we can, we can get that done. And we can get, get it done pretty quickly, you know, through um, social media and just the way we now influence each other. Uh, this can happen not in 30 years, but three years. All right. Well, that's a great note to end on. Um, so thank you, Marie, Eric, for being here. Um, this is a great conversation. I really appreciate you coming in. Um, where can people find more information about the Food Forever initiative? 
Well, you can go on, on the webpage. I think that's the easiest entrance. Food forever. It's just foodforever.org or .com? Is it it's .org. <laughs> <laughs> I had to look around Food a little in the room now. No, it's .org. Yeah. Perfect. Thank, thanks again. And the Crop Trust webpage. You, can, you can always go to and find your way through there. Perfect. And if you're in New York, you can go to Tender Greens and check out the crops growing in the farm shelf. <laughs> yeah, and we're going to start getting some of these ingredients on the menus across you know, all 28 restaurants. So um, over the coming months, you'll start to see Fonio and Amaranth and breadfruit, temporary beans on our menu. Oh, very cool. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. Tune in next Wednesday for a conversation with a Vermont tomato farmer who will be talking about a protest movement against hydroponics and organic, a new organic label, and much more. See you then. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.